speaking truth to power. Her critically engaging voice and fearless speech have proven to be indispensable for calling out injustice wherever it exists. She also is a force grounded within the Socratic tradition, where she embodies the mantra, the unexamined life is not worth living. Dr. K takes both of these traditions and ties them to service. She ties them to a willingness to empty herself and does so through artistic narrative and literary means, whereby she exposes her own pain and angst from being bombarded by racialized catastrophes and universalizes those experiences to other people of color who live in a white supremacist civilization where black and brown love is a crime, where black and brown love hope is a joke, where black and brown freedom is a pipe dream, and where black and brown history is a curse. Dr. K is an academic forensic psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. Her expertise is in unconscious violence and specializes in working with people of color who have been harmed by psychiatry, psychology, and consultations. She also does organizational, organizational consultations for institutions to address racial harm, responsibility, and violence. The goal is to eliminate infrastructure that promotes privilege and to look into the unconscious of each organization to see what they're suffering. Clinically, she specializes in working with people of color and marginalized identities. She completed her undergrad at the University of Michigan for focusing on Renaissance literature. She earned a master's degree in humanities at the University of Chicago, where she focused on critical theory, marginalized around race and sex. And went on to medical school at the University of Chicago and completed her residency at North Presbyterian Cornell. She completed a forensic psychiatry fellowship at NYU and also received their training in addiction medicine. She then completed her training in adult psychoanalysts at Columbia Center for Psychoanalysts and Research. She currently runs a process group at Harlem Hospital and is part of the dance and music communities in New York City. Dr. Kane's life experiences, education, and training have given her a unique, courageous, and visionary voice. It is a voice of freedom, and it is one of the best voices that I ever heard. Will you please help me welcome Dr. Kane to the Yale South Center? Thanks, Rob. I hope I can uh, live up to that <laughs> enormous introduction. I feel like it's a lot of pressure. But how's everybody doing? And it's been a rough week. Have been people watching the trial? Yes? Yeah. Okay. Um, so just to maybe touch points on a couple things like before we get started. Um, this is probably going to... Everyone talks about the, the work on race. Like, what is the work on race? And there's often a lot of talking, but the real work is actually emotional. And in a department of psychiatry, I think that we already know that if you can process negative feelings or if you have access to your aggression, you're actually psychologically healthier. And at the same time, I want us to begin to think of racism as action. 
So I'm going to say a lot of things, and it will probably provoke a lot of responses, and I want you to just maybe observe them in yourself. Are you having moral responses to what I'm saying? Is it a thought? Is it a feeling? Is it an action? How does this relate to it? Um, so that's it. Let's get started. Um, first up, like, prayers up for DMX, who's, like, in the hospital right now. So let's show a prayer for him. And I'm also going to invoke a Sanskrit prayer, which is Nahinyanam Sadrisham. And that means, in this word, there's no position equivalent to knowledge. So, if racism exists in all aspects of our world, it also exists within our collective psychology. Everyone talks about systemic racism, but what does that mean? It means that it exists within our collective psychology, which means that culture is essentially white. It reflects a white mind. There is a psychological dynamic that is on PTSD repeat every time people of color attempt to directly talk to white people about race. The double bind of even bothering to talk at all. An eerie feeling that's familiar of intense rage and futility. We spend our time patiently explaining their attacks as they deny it. We are calm. We are giving to giving. And then when we get angry, they use our responses as confirmation that we're crazy or have emotional problems. It always ends that way. It happens every time like a goddamn timer. We just count it down. White people's expectation is that we need to take their attacks with gratitude and apologize for our anger, and not we're overly sensitive and crazy. Our rage is the real problem. Except nothing makes me angrier than a white person who tells me to not be angry because they have not seen real anger yet. I did this for years in a psychoanalysis where every time I got angry around race, this white bitch called me psychotic. She told me that the problem was that I was, quote, too smart and that I either had to be psychic or psychotic. Her interpretations had nothing to do with me. Psychoanalysis was used on the, as a weapon on me to have aspects of her mind, a projection which I'll unpack. She'd attack me through racist interpretations and then make my anger, quote, the problem. I spent years unpacking her racism to her while she charged me cash money for years. And then she'd attempt to, quote, teach me because she had concern about my anger. I couldn't get her to shut the fuck up. This is the cost of talking to white people at all. The cost of your own life as they stuff you dry. There are no good apples out there. White people make my blood boil. Around five years ago, I took some actions. I systemically, systematically, now I'm going to do white ghosted most of my white friends, and I got rid of a couple white bypasses that snuck in my throat, too. I stopped watching the news. Once I started, I couldn't stop. I had less than 1% left. It was also public service. I had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, daring their body, and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away relatively guiltless. With a bounce in my step, like I did the world a fucking favor. I also walked away from institutions where I spent years training in New York. I didn't want to teach there. I couldn't be a part of it. They are militarized training systems on how to become white. The Ivies are papers after all. So let's step it up, you. I needed to cut out everything white. While ghosting is a super immature move for a psychiatrist, 
My lethal calmly cleanses a moment of reckoning with myself. I don't let myself see that I've been having these conversations for years. It was too painful for me to acknowledge that I was being To see the relationships for what they really were. Attack, entitlement. Holding them above the Connery dungeon, I released them into the pit. I was sparking motherfucking joy. In my own private practice, however, I had the opposite feeling with my white patients. I felt unbearable pain sitting with them and feeling what they were going through. White suffering is desperately painful, even if white people don't know that the origin of their suffering is racism. They've never learned another way. I've been able to take in a few breaths now, and I want to put into words why conversation was never possible, to communicate to you what I thought was impossible. My fantasies of being an assassin were more about my own futility. I was not doing what I needed to do, a meditation on the real murder. I didn't want to look into my own darkness, mix my blood and tears with my finger, and smear it across my forehead as to look. I was scared of my own power and thrill of invoking terror. So I thought myself. In Hindu culture, Mahishasura is a demon that changes form. Every time we killed Mahishasura, it stays immortal by taking a new shape and form. Mahishasura can only be destroyed when you see it for what it is. It can no longer take another form. Racism is my Mahishasura. I arrived from a goddess culture that chose to create and I'm also like really good with knives. So I'm gonna do what I need to do, which is kill Mahishasura and enjoy it. I took a minute, I'm ready to come out and let the killing and creation begin. Adi Parashakti is the moment of absolute truth after the destruction of the universe and before its creation. We're gonna to have to destroy everything to create a new world. I know Dave Chappelle's done new material, but I wanna to return to his special, 846. I hit pause in two moments in Chappelle's 846, the opening and closing question. I'm tired of explaining to these people something that is so goddamn obvious, and are you out of your fucking mind if you can't see that? I held on to every word Chappelle said. The space between his words felt long, emotionally raw. The nightmare of racism hasn't ended, it's endured, thrived. We've never been able to move forward. Why are white people so confused by black rage? More importantly, why do white people have so little empathy towards black rage? In 1846, Chappelle begged white women to just shut up. White women cannot stop talking for longer than five minutes because they think that they are here to teach us about white privilege. And I saw the same type of thinking in all white people in the institutions I was in. But now I got some tools. So let's just say I got a roadmap to the white mind. Are you out of your fucking mind if you can't see that? I asked the exact same question to my first psychoanalyst. The aforementioned white bitch. It wasn't well received. I knew it wouldn't be. I'm psychic like that. Since racism is embedded in culture, it's normal in our society to attack the minds of black and brown people, to say that we're crazy or our rage is a problem. This perception is authorized by academic psychiatry and psychology because they are part of the collective white mind. That shit is white as fuck. I'm going to answer some questions in a series of pieces through a different angle. 
I'll be using my expertise in forensic psychiatry, critical theory, and psychoanalysis to turn the lens on the problem, the white mind. This piece is the intro of pieces to come, which will dig deeper. The series is intended to unpack the hot mess that's the white mind. You will likely have a problem with what I'm saying. Could you try again? Series is very scary. Anyway. Um, Interesting question. All right. <laughs> Let's turn the volume on this down so Siri isn't spying on us. Is this so totally planned? That's part, that's part of my theme. You will likely have a problem with what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. That the way I'm talking about race is, quote, not acceptable to you. These racist restrictions are code for ways of, of speaking and writing. Your need to categorize my writing and the style in which I speak is the dynamic of racism. If my use of the word bitch was too much for you, what I'm saying will threaten you. You need to believe that white people are the real victims. Your racism is going to come alive towards me because I'm directly talking about race, and that's uncomfortable. You will want to box me in to define me so that I'm unacceptable and not the ever-shifting forms of racism. My pieces are an objective expose on racism. I'm going to rip and banter through my memoirs as I slowly run a blade across your neck. These pieces are an intimate look into my complicated relationship with myself dealing with whiteness, my problems with my profession, and the world at large. I will lay out how racism pervades all parts of my life as I settle the score. Nothing is more intimate than death, so we're going to get a little close, and I'm going to have a little fun. You may have heard of words such as psychopath and bully, or like me, you'd be more partial to the more sort of accurate descriptors of asshole and bitch. None of these words come even close to capturing the pervasive white people are truly a phenomenon. This means that we need a brand new vocabulary for these concepts to imagine something new, an experiential remix that draws from culture, psychoanalysis, and forensics. I have created a psychological mashup guide to the violence that white people commit as part of their identity and their need to stay guilty, to not face some awful truths. We need a vocabulary of new concepts to help people of color name what they experience, to identify the violence that's committed on them, and to reflect on the parts they may have also internalized. I'll unpack how racism is embedded in white culture and how it reflects the collective white mind. Racism hides behind a distorted white focus on black rage as a problem that black and brown people need to address without seeing it as a projection of their own sickness. Racism is masked by white efforts to help people of color, an identity I will call white goodness. Because of this dynamic of white people never owning their shit, black and brown people have always had a different room to talk about white people. For white people, my series is an invitation into the other room to see how we view you and to begin to own your own violence. But it's your first time here, so I want to make sure that you're like comfortable or at least seated, like I'm a good host like that. But you're here, I respect that. My thoughts are clearly an integration of like way too many years in school, and during that time I had to play anthropologist to white academics to survive and understand what the fuck they are really saying, so I've learned how to decode white. I will be teaching these new concepts to you, but my form is just a candid conversation. 
what I'm talking about is really emotionally painful. But at the same time, sometimes we just need a little laughter. We need a little sugar to bear to know. Let's take it. White people have been out of their minds since Western colonialism. It was the worst violence the world has ever seen. White people tell themselves that they are the superheroes of the world. They started this lie to justify their violence. I'm going to call the superhero identity white goodness. It is the mask of a psychopath. White people don't know they are wearing a mask because usually psychopaths don't know that they're psychopaths. This mask is an essential part of their identity. Every time a person, a white person lies about their violence to or against a person of color, they invert reality. The violence becomes exceptional heroism. White people also have to distort the perception of a person of color to make them inferior and in need of help to justify violence. And for white people, everyone was in need of their help, which is like how colonialism began. So now white people have violently inverted reality for years to continue to see themselves as the world's superheroes It's brand management at the point. So white people are out of their minds and they have been for a long time. So we're now in a psychological predicament because white people feel that we are bullying them when we bring up race. They feel that we should be thanking them for all that they have done for us. They are confused and so are we. Racism, it serves no purpose other than to jerk themselves off. 
We're posturing as a nation. And yet, for all the babbling and teaching that white people do, the moment you bring up race, they deflect any suggestion that they're racist with a white verbal blah blah. They go on white video apology tour when they, when they get caught being racist. That was not me. I lost control. I am not that person. I was raised to be respectful of difference. Um, I honor and salute you. That's not an apology. That is a press statement. What they are saying is, that was a one-off. I had a moment where I lost control. That was not me. It's all of you, America. What they're communicating is you are the ones who are off with what we saw. We came into contact with their unconscious. White people are dependent on black rage to set up issues of race as outside of themselves. They need to focus on the intensity of rage as a problem located in a person of color to establish that race has nothing to do with them. The problem of race is that we have difficulty with emotional regulation. Once we calm the fuck down, they can actually talk about race, how they can even help us. The most violent racists are the ones who are not aware of their unconscious, not the ones that express their hatred in words. Most racism is unconscious. In fact, not understanding black rage is a psychological requirement for white people to flourish and thrive. It's a cover to not know their unconscious or who they really are. Their survival depends on it. That's why it needs to be perpetually confusing for white people. Not understanding black rage is why our nation and world hasn't been able to mourn from the level of violence of slavery, colonialism, and conversion. Racism is just its continuing legacy. A reminder of what we haven't yet faced together, our collective trauma of sorrow, anguish, and utter desolation. We're not addressing racism at all until we can understand black rage, and we will never be able to collectively mourn the trauma of racism until we can have empathy for black rage. But we can barely tolerate it, and we are unsettled as a nation because of it. It's time to settle the score. Next section. All lives matter. It's the same. Are there any psychoanalysts in the room? Yeah, yes, okay. So what I'm about to go into is going to be familiar to you in a different form. This is a tax on linking. It's impossible to talk about race because we are talking to psychopaths. Psychopaths are psychologically, psychological bullies because they actually have no self-esteem. They are all image. White people turn the tables on us when we directly bring up race because they feel threatened. They're grasping at that last shred of imagined self-esteem. Our accurate observations threaten to expose them. So turning the tables on us is defensive. That's why they blame us and go full throttle victim. I cannot even begin a conversation about racism without getting a steely ice direct warning from a whitey that I'd be respectful to not generalize to all people because, well, that's racist. In a single moment, white people reverse the conversation, tell me that I'm racist to even dare to bring it up. They say this with a perfect combination of condescension and concerned white person teachy boys. 
to offer me just enough proof of salvation. If it's the right woman, I'll usually get a little extra support through teaching, but I digress. It's a command to shut up. I am the problem now. We are the problem now. How the hell did this happen? And why does this happen instantly all the damn time? Why do people live with a feeling of unfairness? It's not fair for me to think about my racism. That's why they literally bring up everything other than what just happened when you bring up race. What about Marvel fans? I eat kind bars. I am kind. But I'm gay. What about white vegans? What about people who like tea? I only eat the outside of Oreo. Is that just like suddenly all hate gay people, trans people, fat people, and like we're all Holocaust That's why they have this all lives matter moment when we bring up race. White people feel like everything is unfair for them, especially self-examination. They have a singular mission to cling onto their most sacred feeling, unfairness, so that they can feel like this conversation is unfair to them. That's why all white people act quit upon when we bring up race. We're victimizing them. White people destroy all meaning of racism by destroying the meaning of inequality and racism. This is the attack on my game part. They need to reach a conclusion of sameness to safeguard their feeling of unfairness. So how do they do this? White people use the language of equality or sameness to protect their entitled lives. So they never have to do the work of equity. They need to believe that what they have is rightfully earned. So instead of not sameness or false equivalence around harm, this is going to get very specific, they destroy the truth and self-righteously defend its destruction. It's an abuse of language to destroy the difference between words, to make all words the same, to make them meaningless. They flash for us with words to liberate the purpose of language, to communicate accurately. And if there's no difference, there can't be empathy. They're a hot mess. It's a psychotic word dance. They arrive at a paradox of nonsense, that racism does not exist, and that we're the real racist. We're the real oppressors, because that's fair. Bringing up that racism and white privilege exists is racist to a white person. Having to even consider their own racism is the same to them and actual racism. You can kind of hand it to white people, it's sort of like the most brilliant anti-logic I've ever heard. But like, see if you can hold this thought as we go a bit further. We are the real racists to dare to have this conversation with them. White people will now invert the conversation to prove that we're the real racists. So if you happen to get any further with a white person, the thing that's conclusion is gonna take the following form. It's usually through shrieking. We can have empathy for you, and you need to have empathy for us. It's the same. Sounds good so far, right? Like, let's slow it down. See what what they're actually saying. What words are being equated with what? What do white people need our empathy for? Let's fill in the blanks of what empathy really means. We can have empathy for you, quote, and the history of racism, but you need to have empathy for us, feeling bad or guilty. Why do occasionally fill in the first blank? The second blank is problematic and almost never filled in because white people ain't really requesting empathy. They want sympathy. It's a desperate, creating state towards white guilt or feeling bad. Also, white people are now speaking 
history of racism. They changed time on a field, so it's all in the past. So by this point, we're so, so lost by white logic that we no longer know what racism means. So this is meaningful. Let's put this bad one together. Is feeling bad or guilty about the harm that white people have caused is the same as actual racism against us, then they are saying that these are equivalent states of harm. So feeling guilty about committing systemic violence is being harmed as much as the violence of racism. Since they're the same, there's not really anything to talk about here. It's a wrap. Or put differently, racism does not exist. But remember that white people need guilt to hold this whack-ass conclusion of seeing this together um, because it makes no sense. And if not, there's no harm to them and they actually have to face their own racism. So white people have a situation. They're saying, you need to have pity on my feeling bad. Facing my own violence is a violent attack for me. Stop talking or I will feel violently attacked. So let's take that seriously. That's how threatened they feel. They have to deliver an ultimatum, and that's why feeling guilty is a psychological necessity for them. As long as they stay guilty, they don't actually have to face reality. And it's not that white people won't speak to us about the racism that took place. It's actually that they can't. It's a psychological limitation of their mind. They're struggling emotionally with the content of what we just said. They just can't go there with us, and we have to actually accept that distinction. And we can because our minds are different. They're also saying to us, you need to understand me. You have misunderstood me. This me part feels threatened. So in order for America to feel, we need to understand what white people will undergo if they allow themselves to really know that it's not the same. White people will be terrified. That's why they cling onto a feeling of guilt. We also need to gracefully accept, for now, that white people truly are confused by black rage, which they are. White people don't want to become aware of their true intention, to know who they really are and what they have done. Each conversation on race sounds completely new to them. That's why they all sound demented. They are hurt by their own racism. They just don't know that. They are hurting their own minds. They want us to preserve sympathy around their guilt, to not face the horrors of what they do to other people, and also the horrors of what they've done to themselves. Next section. The loss of what was already gone. I would like to invite all people of color in not where I thought it was going to go in my writing, but here we are, to empathize with the enormity of stakes when white people face their guilt. The emotional risk of being vulnerable enough to begin to know what they've done to other people and themselves. The inconsolable losses that they have already gone through but do not know as of yet. Beginning to know what they never have. White people have to face the largest psychological task America has yet to face. They need to face their own psychopathy. They need to face their own violent history, which they needed to see as external to themselves. 
to no longer see white privilege as not me, but a violent part of themselves as they face their past and continued level of criminal violence. White people actively hide all of this from themselves. They just put everything out of sight, literally. If you can't see it, it never happened. It's part of their unexamined worldview. You can keep it where it belongs, unconscious forever. Otherwise, what the whiteies do would be staring them in the face, and that would be rude. If you can't, the defining symptom of white privilege is the ability to choose not to see. If you can't see prisons overflowing with black and Latino men, you say, great, you didn't do it. Prisons vanish. Incarceration is magic. White people need to control who's in and who's out. If we look at what is so secret that it has no location, we won't find a damn thing. They keep their airtight CIA-level operation of white privilege hidden from us. You can't wiretap an operation that has no location. You don't want anyone to see a bathroom meeting about a meeting outside code and behind the scenes strategically placed phone calls. You don't want them all. You want it to work and work for you. White people are hiding from themselves. Fatally shooting a 17-year-old boy as he returned from a candy store saved a community. Neighborhood watch color. Trayvon was in a hoodie and up to no good. Slaying a black runner from a pickup truck is self-defense. White people put Eric Garner in a chokehold while he suffocated, and his life slowly left him, but it's not violent. It's a gentle neck massage. With Brianna Taylor, the cops got charged for wanton endangerment. White people could have been hurt. There were no indictments because of what white people saw protection of themselves. The cops got charged for the bullets that missed her black body, not the eight bullets that they loaded into her. Translation. The bullets that count are the ones that protect the real issue. The right to kill black people. Breonna Taylor's body is just collateral damage. How white people view themselves has to change. They each have to undergo a complete collapse of identity as a good, helping, and teaching person. History will have to be rewritten, and they're not prepared. They will be undone, and we can see this right now. White people are disintegrating into a rage with just the dawning threat that an ounce of white privilege may crumble. We need to hold them up as it happens. They are terrified to really level the playing field because it's the first time that white people have ever really had to compete and they don't know if they can. White people have never earned shit a day in their lives. They've had centuries of rigging the game. You know that Shakespeare is a decent rhymer in some circles, but if you battle Thorne Hill or Snoop Dogg or Biggie, or he would lose, and in a big way. Being slow makes Shakespeare look like he's trying too hard. He would just be all right. He would never enter the pages of history. He would be an unknown. Instead, we would know Mithra, Sundar Fu, Queen Indra of the Chimer, and the Queen of Flow of the Dr. Bean. 
And I like Biggie and Snoop, like, in the same breath. I like Biggie. I like Snoop. I just figure that, like, when America is, like, really ready, I'll address the East Coast, West Coast rap divide, which is not yet. So, like, let's go back to it. The game is radio. White privilege was meant to run outside of the game. Its location is backdoor. It's always been. And yet, white people set themselves up to lose, they just didn't know it. They rigged the game to control the canon because they could never really compete on the world stage. And it's graffiti sprayed all over the cultural unconscious in large block letters. White people can't dance. White men can't jump. White people can't really, well, like, feel the deal, if you know what I mean. They know they were missing something. That's why they had to colonize India, Africa, South America, and the whole world because we got flavor. Some of them try to rhyme, but they can't rhyme like this. If you colonize the whole world and own everything, you push your own ideas of what counts as literature, food, art, and music and set it up as a standard. You put your highest value on your thoughts, and then you present your personal life playlist as neutral. That's witness. You get to own the canon as if it's a real thing and not made up. And you get to use whatever you like to support the grand narrative of yourself and hide the power differential at the same time. Poof, poof. What would happen if tacos were paid what they're truly worth? This is why entrecote is expensive and, well, bad, and tacos are cheap as fuck. No one has any questions that tacos are like the hands-down wares, like in life. And that's the real reason we need to roll up with Mexico. Well, that and Cojito. That shit is good. I got you, Puerto Rico. The real Cojito is not the party. You are still safe because white people think that you're behind the wall. That's why white people love talking about paranoid fantasies of people of color because nothing is more threatening to white people than facing reality. They have never faced reality, and as long as they stay guilty, they never have to. So let's change that. Let's not talk about fantasies. Let's talk about reality, capital R. So let's just do a little recap here. If feeling guilty about their violence is the violence inflicted on white people, they're also saying, I feel attacked for having to consider my own violent actions. Any conversation about race gets turned back on us for one single insistent reason. We are not getting who they really are. Why? Like, who are you guys? So let's meet white people where they're at by understanding how threatened they feel about looking at who they really are. We have to help them open their eyes and begin to see and hear for the first time. And level up, level up, level up. Next session. Out of sight, out of mind, the hidden white worldview. White people do not see their violence. Literally, they do not see it. And they give a special name to their blind spot. Objectivity. White people have structured their entire worldview around not seeing their violence and entitlement. Objectivity is the organizing mythology of white people. So when you hear the word objective, neutral, impartial, think white. And yes, I'm talking to you, psychoanalyst. White people have given another name to their violence. Biased. You are biased. 
That's your point of view. It's a point of view that they can't see because we are pointing at them, not seeing their violence. What if people set up a power differential in relation to us where they're objective and we're emotional? And they dismiss everything on those terms because we're so emotional. So let's just do a little mini history lesson here to see this impressive setup. I'm going to backtrack. A little history lesson. Colonialism is, uh, is unrestrained predation. It uses power to assert Eurocentric and Western dominance um, and justifies control over resources and people by legitimizing violence. Colonialism is psychopathy. White people have physically structured academics around their objectivity. They put colonized narratives in the Department of History. This is really easy to pick up. History is basically like fan fiction for white people to marvel at like how amazing they are. You get the sense that when you talk to white people that they're sort of stuck in like a Marvel comic, just count the number of times they use the word super. I live in the greatest country in the world. I'm a superpower, super freak. They learned this in history class. They leave out their violence. White people put their violence physically outside of history department. Keep it out of place. These have different names. These are called Latin American studies, Caribbean studies, East Asian studies. It goes on. So I'm taking these classes, and just to give you a one sentence summary, like telling you what I've learned, because I've taken a bunch of these classes, I'm going to summarize it. Let's go up to everything we have our land, culture, history, and personhood. Like there. That's it. You've taken all the classes. They keep us apart in different departments far away from each other because we all say the same thing. White people have destroyed everything we have, and they don't want black people to know. They fragment communities of color so black people feel isolated rather than know they have a world of community. White people also separate non-black people of color to accept their place outside of history with a coercive promise of privilege. You, too, can become white one day if you participate in anti-blackness. If you accept the white trap, you're actually accepting your own inferiority. It is designed to fragment all black and brown people, so it's a win-win for the white. A man who cheats makes sure that all the women he cheats with can, like, never meet. He knows that if they ever got together, they would burn his motherfucker ass to the ground. And that party would be lit. Racism is a hidden continuation of colonialism. White people systematically structuralize their entitlements, the practices and policies to keep their violence and hatred out of sight. White people be tricky. They now oppress us through an invisible power differential of unearned assets. White people continue to confer advantage based on race to themselves and a system of disadvantage to non-white groups. Except now that shit is smoother, cleaner, and better sanitized since the violence is no longer direct. These two different kinds of history actually reflect two different kinds of minds around the perception of violence. White people set up their worldview to avoid seeing their violence. They're objective, and we're emotional, so we can't see straight. Except that psychopaths are unemotional. 
because they project all their violence outside of themselves and never process their own emotions about violence. They are cold and calculating because they never own their own shit. They seriously have no negative emotions. Which is why all white people are chillingly objective. Next section. The mask of psychopaths. Right, goodness. Black and brown people have this sort of like shared cultural moment watching white people react to Trump getting elected in. And then watching white people react to his chronic lines. Like, white people were suddenly like, oh my god, he made no sense. And white people didn't really see the humor in us observing them say this. Because alternative facts are only really new for white people. We know that white people have never made any sense. Systemic racism and white privilege is something that all white people want to deny. Each uniquely believing that if they're not consciously racist, then they must not be racist, even as they participate in violence. And yet every white person also truly believes that they are the special and unique exception of privilege and get. So much so that they each individually believe they are the true liberators of the third world. It's their calling, the chosen one. And what it means are kind of having a moment right now where they believe that they are the anointed teaching stages of privilege and whiteness. And you cannot even laugh. Because you have to remember that it's not ironic for them. How the identity of rampant exceptionalism both become believable and the norm for white people? Language gives us access to how white people consciously view themselves. White speak is the language of opposite. The difference between what you say and what you do. It gives us an entry point into the white mind. Since white people don't consciously experience themselves as violent, we need to first understand and name how they do see themselves. White people have created a systematic methodology to experience violence as not me. So I'm going to use language accurately as we begin to understand the white mind. I'm going to rename and create our own lexicon and like, this is going to be some shit. White people gouge out their eyes to keep the image of themselves as superheroes. So if you create a narrative that others need you and you're graciously feeding them, you can basically justify all violence. It's a psychological goal. White goodness is an identity to consciously experience violence as not me. And it's not just an organizing identity, it's also a performance. And not just any performance, it's the showstopper of all shows, the Tony of Tony. White goodness is a particular genre of live theater that focuses on the optics of caring. Every public moment in the world signals their innate virtuosity and nobility. The unbridled expression of tears, moral indignation and outrage over all the world's atrocities are part of the careful cultivation of how white people need to be seen. It's a stuff of legends. You know when it's happening because you just kind of want to sit back, get some popcorn, and like watch the show of emotion. It's going to be epic and long, so grab a beer and make sure it's cold. You got to ask the question, why white people have the highest level of sanctimonious outrage for things that have never happened to them? Well, also, 
reflexively rejecting all racist actions they commit. White outrage is a, is a moral badge of honor for how much more concern they have for what is really going on, how much better they are than us. Black rage is a communication about pain. White rage is an intentional shifting away from the real content to divert attention back to the real stars. White people. Hello, superiority. They got that badge. White people can now save us all from an otherwise wretched existence. Heroes. White people should often display colored kids that they quote help. Selfie. Hashtag tremendous capacity to care. Colored kids are the fuck. Documentary filmmakers who quote give voice to other communities. International adoption. Click, click. Always look to see who's in the center of the shot, has the mic, or who the story in the press is really about. Poof, white magic. This is why all white people love injustices. It's their chance to shine and take center stage. And the little voice inside of you knows it would be damn near impolite to gently question, why the fuck are you so outraged? None of this happens to you. You know that it would just cause another dazzling surge of white affrontedness, and you would be an asshole. So win-win for white goodness. White women have elevated this to an art. You can see this in their water cooler response to Jay-Z's reclaimed use of the N-word. In his, in his interview with Oprah, it was a white call to arms. They are more offended and feel that they are better black than black people because they, quote, get it. They get the real black experience. They can now teach black people how to be better black overall. Thank you. Jay-Z is doing just fine. I went to training on a clinic day in residency when the 2008 terror attacks on Mumbai happened. Two directors of the clinic positioned themselves in the room to give voice to themselves and perform their goodness. One of them had traveled to India and used the moment to wax lyrical about his romanticized notions of India and bemoan his imagined abstract loss. What a beautiful country, the colors, the vividness, the people. Such a beautiful country. We went to, it was a tale of his travel. And apparently his designer color screens too. The other one voiced her heavy despair. Her voice shook with white emotion as she took center stage. It was truly spectacular. After they filled up the space with the story of themselves, they moved on. There were two people of Indian descent in the room. What they did do was ask us if we had any relatives in Mumbai, or even if they were alive or dead. Details, really. We were an afterthought. I was an afterthought. It was a story about them, and a spectacular one it was. Inside the white mind, every day is opposite day. Is this the right time, 156? Let me know if you want me to stop or keep going. I, I, you know, I, I'd love to keep going on, but I also want to yeah, get some comments. I, I think if you want, that'd be great. And I know there's a lot of comments, and uh, I'm seeing several on, on my feed. So, so thank you for, um, for shaking us. Really, I, I feel very shook in a, in a, in a, in a good way. And it's, um, you know, a lady coming from Mexico, I think that a lot of the things that you have said have resonated with me um, in an uncomfortable way. 
And I think you guys thank you for that. Cool.